Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 2,247. A life well lived is a life worth sharing. And today we're going on a lifelong ride with a truly inspiring automotive enthusiast. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, and welcome to Cars Yeah. Today I'm in Los Angeles, California, with a very special guest by the name of Raul Balkin. His friends know him as Sonny. Hey, Raul, welcome to Cars Yeah. Do you have any gear, and are you ready to release the clutch? Yes, I am, Mark. Thank you very much. You're welcome. We're going to have some fun today. Now, before I give you a proper introduction and we talk about this wonderful book you've written about your life, what's one little thing, this might be hard to answer, one little thing that most people don't know about you, Sonny? Uh, I think my heritage, my background, my Belgian background, and, and uh, my uh, my engineering uh, grandfather, et cetera, et cetera, my military officer father who retired as a full colonel. And, uh, you know, that, that and living in Italy as a young boy, et cetera, et cetera, they, they don't really know that. You went into that a bit in your book. I did. I went and, you know, I put a little family history in there, Mark. And the other thing is, is that, you know, I grew up during World War II because I was born in 36. And so I lived in Italy right after the war. I always say right after the smoke cleared because my father took us over there and we lived in Naples. And it was a totally different time in the world. And, and I think when I saw war-torn Europe, I really, and I wrote a little bit about that in the book, I came back with a different perspective as a young boy about what the future would hold in the U.S. and saw that as a golden opportunity. As I said in the book, when, when we left uh, you know, the Mediterranean coming home on a troop ship through the Straits of Gibraltar and into New York Harbor and saw Statue of Liberty, I was an excited kid. <laughs> wow, what a life. Well, allow me to give you a proper introduction, and we're going to talk more about this spectacular book. Raul Sonny Abalkin grew up in Los Angeles at a time when it became the epicenter of American motor racing, nurturing a vast talent pool of people who influenced as a teenager he successfully competed with his home-built top fuel dragster he lovingly called bantamweight bomb during the formative years of the sport and with lance reventlow he worked on the famous scarab sports cars and was standing in the diner room when the team's all-american formula one engine was fired up for the first time. A period as Jim Hall's crew chief and a close association with Carroll Shelby added to this know-how that guided him towards becoming a, a successful entrepreneur and led to all that followed. Sonny's life is outlined in his autobiography published by our friends in Evro over in the UK and it includes co-authors Jill Amadio and past Cars yeah guest Pete Lyons. This engaging memoir from one of American's racing unsung heroes is a very personal history of momentous times and places in which you meet the who's who of West Coast racing. And today he's a young 86 years old, retired and enjoying a life. We'll hear a, a little word from our sponsors for a moment here before we come back. So buckle up the seatbelts. We're going on a ride with Sonny and we'll be right back. Okay. Years ago, when it was time to renew my collector car insurance policy, my carrier's rates went up. 
way up, but my usage was the same and I never made a claim. I didn't even have a ticket. So what's with that? So I turned to American Collectors Insurance. Has your collector car insurance recently raised your rates for no good reason? Tired of paying an annual membership fee? Then it's time to look around and call American Collectors Insurance. I shopped around. I asked friends for recommendations and found a winner that I can trust. And boy, I'm glad I did. I saved hundreds of dollars every year and slept better at night knowing my baby was properly insured. American Collectors Insurance have been protecting vehicles since 1976. They provided me with an agreed value insurance policy backed by their history of taking great care of their clients. What could be better than that? So give them a call and ask for a quote today. 866-ACI-YEAH. That's 866-224-9324. And protect the ones you love like I did with American Collectors Insurance. Classic car insurance designed by collectors for collectors. For several years now, you've heard me talk about Linkage Magazine. I've been a subscriber since the start. Their talented and creative team brings you a spectacular publication and website that shares the automotive passion from a worldwide perspective. Linkage is about driving, restoring, collecting, and firsthand experience at collector car auctions and more. They bring you real-world values plus rational, experienced opinions on the current markets. They cover the automotive world and the people who share our passions. And Linkage Magazine has grown, mailing you six issues annually. Join me on this journey with Linkage. They're geared for the automotive life. You can subscribe at LinkageMag.com. So, Sonny, we are back. So... You know, we could talk for hours about this, and I don't want to give the whole book away because it's 320 pages, but it is fascinating. But I want to touch on little bits of this. So I want to go back to the beginning. You talked about coming to the U.S. as a little kid. Let's talk a little bit about your drag racing years. Then we'll dive into the Scarab years, time with Carol Shelby, and an incredible lineup of people. But let's go back to the beginnings of what got you into cars. Mama. <laughs> Mama. <laughs> I say that because we were, there was a place here called Culver Boulevard, and we lived in Playa del Rey, as it said in the book. And we were driving home one night from the movies, and this, this young fellow came up to my mother, and you know, in those days they had running boards on the car, and I think we were in a 35 Pontiac or something. That's the wartime stuff right after the war. And so he came up and he said, Ma'am, do you mind sitting back a little bit? He says, We've got a speed contest going on here. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, we don't want anybody to get hurt, so let's just be and it'll be over in a little bit. So my, we stayed there and we watched street racing. <laughs> wow. And from street racing is how I got smitten. You know, I'd hear those in those days, flathead V8s, with, they all had a lot of accoutrements like Vic Edelbrock Sr., whom I knew, you know, had cylinder heads and they had intake manifolds and some of them would have two carburetors and three. And I would look at those engines and the headers and everything and they were in 32 roadsters or hot rods. And I go, wow, wow. <laughs> and as a 13-year-old, I got excited, you know, and, I, and the noise and the sound, I mean, I just was driven into motorsports heaven. I mean, not motorsports, but petrolhead heaven. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, let's start with the drag racer. And I mentioned at the beginning, you called it the bantamweight bomb. What was this drag racer like? Well, actually, I was a pioneer in drag racing at Top Fuel, but there's a big history there with some special people. But it was named Bantamweight Bomb by Drag News because it was such a light car. I think it weighed 1,200 pounds, as we said in the story, which was really light at the time. Yep. And the, the, you could 
take look at pictures of cars in the 50s and, the, and drag racing, and they were really primitive. As a matter of fact, in my book, there's a primitive one that I happened to be my, happened to be my first ride when I was a young kid. And it was Ed Donovan was and Frank Startup, but Ed Donovan is the key guy because he became Donovan Engineering, which came up with the first aluminum uh, hemi block and so forth and so on. And so he was a drag racing pioneer beyond repute. And uh, he was my mentor. I mean, th- they were older guys. I was lucky to have the intelligence to communicate with them. And, and uh, you know, I hung out with them. I followed instructions. And finally, I said, I'm going to build my own dragster. And I did. I built one. And since they ran four cylinders, I had a, something different. And it was a GMC. And I was able to work with that car. And I worked on it. Start out with the original uh, three-port head. Which, well, I don't want to get technical on you. <laughs> and then, and, and I ran it. You know, and there's pictures in the book of, of starting on a drag race. I think I got up to 136 miles an hour with it at the drags. But I was running 100% nitromethane, which was new stuff yeah. in those days. And, uh, and it was tricky. We had a lot to learn about it. You know, we used to call it when we'd fill it up. We'd call it. We put. What'd you do? I put the can, the lid, and the label in it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you you went on to become quite a drag racer. Well, I was very successful with it, but, and I was doing it a long time, and I developed it up to where I, I put the famous Wayne 12 Ford head on it I was able to get from Bob Torres, by the way, who uh, or Harry Warner, who had worked with Wayne Horning originally. And it, then we had individual intake ports, individual exhaust ports, and I thought I had died and gone to heaven <laughs> because I had more air coming into the engine. I, I could control the compression ratios a little easier. And uh, it just, I was able to work with valve timing better, and I was able to work with everything. And then I had another mentor. His name was Ed Winfield, the famous cam grinder and carburetor builder oh, yeah. from the 20s. Yeah. And so I used to go, we used to call him the old man. <laughs> and uh, every Saturday afternoon, I'd go down to Glendale, all the way from West Hollywood, where I was working in Warren Olson's shop on you know the the original scare this is before the original scare because Lance raced Maseratis and Coopers mm-hmm. and Warren Olson was the Cooper distributor for the USA so we distributed Cooper Formula 3 cars which was a training car for Formula 1 in the old days with 500cc motorcycle engine in it so I had one I set up for Bruce Kessler uh, with a Norton in it and you probably heard of the Norton and I of had course. I was running it on pure menthol because I had a lot of experience with fuels and Bruce was very successful in that car and then we also had Cooper Climaxes, which were rear-engine sport cars with the Coventry Climax engine in the rear, yeah. uh, which was uh, built by the British as a fire pump engine during the Blitz. And, uh, you know, it, it was produced a fair amount of power. I forgot what it was. I mean, we, did, we, we didn't all jump, put them on the dyno in those days, so to speak, because it wasn't always easy to hook up and it was expensive. But Lance had one of those, and they also had a Maserati 2-liter and that just got him smitten. And in the book, it says about Bruce Kessler. Bruce Kessler and he were buddies. And they came up with uh, Lance went to England with Bruce, and they were talking to uh, Brian Lister about you know his car and building a car. And Lance was in there talking to him. And Lance was a very forward thinker. He didn't have a degree in engineering, but he was a very smart man. And he, he was my contemporary, by the way. He would be my age if he were alive today. And he would go back, and he. He talked to Lister, and he just came back to Bruce. He said, I'm going to work with this guy. I'm going to build my own sports car. And he came back to the U.S., and, and the Scarab was born. Well, let's talk about the Scarab years, because the Scarab is one of those vehicles that is just magical. How did you get involved in all of that? Well, 
because of him. Because <laughs> I mean, he... I worked at Warren Olson's shop, as it says in the book. I mean, I worked at other places, but I, I, I was, I said my lucky day was Warren Olson came in and found me, and I was working with a fellow called Bud Han, who was a sweetheart of a guy who worked on a lot of British cars like MGs and Jaguars and Austin. Well, I don't forget the Austin Healy wasn't even around yet. And we worked on those cars, and, and I came as, as a young apprentice because Ed Donovan got me the job, and I dropped out of high school. I was so enthusiastic about it, as it said in the book, but I became very good at it, and so therefore Warren Olson came by, and he said, yeah, I, well, I actually worked for Pete Clark, who was Rex Mays' mechanic, and then he came by Pete Clark's shop, and he came in chatting with me, and he said, you know, I'd like to hire you, and he had a shop on La Cienega Boulevard, uh, in the restaurant row area, we used to call it, and uh, he was working on Porsches, and of course, naturally, other imports, for, you know, AMGs and things, but he taught me all about Porsches, because he was trained in it so I could take a Porsche apart and put it together in my sleep, including, including the old hearth crank uh, twin camera. But uh, it just, you know, Warren was a very special guy. He was trained by German mechanics and he worked for Johnny von Neumann. I mean, I say it in German, but people know him as von Neumann. And he became the Porsche distributor and the Volkswagen distributor for the United States because it was an infant car in those days. He had a gas station out in the valley. And out of that came the distribution system for Volkswagen and, uh, and Porsche. Is there anybody you don't know out there in the car world? Oh, my no, gosh. I, you know, I got to tell you a funny little story. I used to have friends in racing from indie guys and drag racing guys, and they used to call me the great racing Sonny Bell Kane <laughs> so, as a kid. So I was always happy about that because I, I lived and breathed it. I was totally passionate. I love motorsports. I yeah. mean, if I could see better today, I'd be out on the track. I'm taking my wife out to the Porsche experience in a couple of weeks that she's going to drive a 911 around the track. So. Oh, nice, nice. Well, uh, so. it's quite spectacular. Now, another character that everyone will know that you ended up hanging out with and doing things with is, of course, the great legendary Carol Shelby. Well, that was a story unto itself. Shelby was a piece of work, as we used to say. And, <laughs> you know, I loved him. A lot of people didn't. And, you know, people have their different views of him. But first off, he didn't have any money, and he wanted to make money. And you can't blame him for that. He was entrepreneurial, as we talk, talked about in our preamble out there. And he started putting it together. He was a sports car racer. He had, I had known him, actually, before he won the Mall, because he was a friend of mine's I mean, everybody knew him because we were all together in sport car racing in the old days, Santa Barbara, Palm Springs, uh, Phoenix, and those kind of places. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'd all go to the sports car races. And uh, at, I think one, at that time, I'd been working for Jim Hall. I mean, I got hired by him after that to go to work for Jim Hall. But uh, so that's why I was with Jim for about a year and a half in the beginning before Saparel. Wow. And uh, he, uh, I uh, built his the V8 for his Lister Chevy, and I took care of his the first Lotus twin cam. I think the car, McKay Frazier, had been killed in it in Le Mans, and then the car was rebuilt by Colin Chapman because he was so, you know, he didn't scrap it in those days because nobody had nobody had any money. So it was, so anyway, uh, Jim had that car on Shelby's behest because Shelby knew a lot of people in England. And Shelby had his name on a sports car agency in Dallas, and it was called Carroll Shelby Sports Cars. So I became the key chief race engineer there because Carroll came over and hired me as a young guy because I had a lot. I mean, I was a skilled drag racer at that point, and I really knew what I was doing. And so he hired me to be Jim Hall's crew chief at the time. Wow. So I was the chief race engineer. So And Jim would, they would take these cars out and race them that they sold in order to get customers. <laughs> and the Hall brothers, 
the Hall brothers family had the money in the business, and that's why it was able to do it. But it had Carol's name on it. Carol had been a good driver in the U.S., and he had not yet gone to Le Mans. I think it was 59 he went to Le Mans, and he won Le Mans. Mm-hmm. So when he came back from Le Mans, he had, of course, heart conditions, as we all know historically. He had to suck on nitroglycerin to keep himself going. And uh, in the process, he was looking around for things to do. And, of course, I was a hot rodder living here in West Hollywood at the time, near Warren Olson's shop. And that's why I was part of the old Hollywood scene, you know, in those days and knew everybody. And... Uh, as Bruce, Bruce Kessler wrote in my book. But the, the big thing is, is that he came into town doing that. And uh, he saw that we, Peterson Publishing was on the corner of Sunset Boulevard at that time. I knew Pete when he, he had it over on Hollywood Boulevard, but he had it on Sunset in uh, La Cienega. And there was a little coffee shop called Ben Frank's. So he says, come on, Sonny, I want to talk to you. Let's go to lunch. Hmm. So this is before the Cobra ending. He, had, he started a driving school. Okay. And he, and so... He says, I'll get lunch. <laughs> and he <laughs> opens these envelopes and takes out the dollar bills. People said cash in those old days, and he bought lunch wow. from his stack of mail that he had received for driving school inquiries. Oh, my gosh. That's how, that's how he did it. But, you know, the rest is history. And he became a good friend of Peterson's. Yep. And uh, the one thing led to another, and then he started hanging out with the hot rodders. And we're a very special lot, as you know and have read. And so we just are very creative people going out doing our own thing. I mean, the guys that were doing things in those days. And uh, uh, he got involved with them. And then he came up with the idea. I think Ray Brock, who worked for Peterson, told him about, at this time, this little 221 cubic inch shallow core, which meant that the casting wasn't as wide and the uh, total entity wasn't as large, uh, V8. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, Carol, that'd be great to put in one of those, and we used to call them sporty cars, in one of those little sporty cars. <laughs> this is about 60, 61, something like that. And so so uh, he got one of those engines, which later became the 289, by the way. I'm just saying this is the basic engine. Right. But it started out as a 221. Ford made it to fit in the Falcon. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. And I, and I think McNamara was running Ford Motor Company at the time. But anyway... Follow through with it. My friend Dean Moon at Dean Moon Equipment, the one that made all the hubcaps that he's most famous for, but a lot of other stuff. Of course, stuff. another big Fuel name. tanks and yeah. everything else. Uh, the first Cobra was assembled and put together uh, right there at his shop. Wow. At Dean Moon's shop. Wow. And then and then Carroll started trying to sell that. He was going to sell that. No Ford Motor Company involvement at that point. But then I think maybe somebody like Rock or somebody who was really sharp, you know, P- Peterson's one of Peterson's editors, the editor of the Hot Rod at the time, or a publisher of Hot Rod. In those days, they called them editors, and then later on moved them up to publishers and then had editors. But uh, uh, he, uh, he, he was helpful to Shelby, and he liked Shelby. So that helped that thing move along, and then Carol went out and started, you know, promoting Ford. The rest and is history. And the rest is history. As they say. But Pete Brock, by the way, Pete Brock ran his driving school in Riverside at the track. Oh, that's Pete right, Brock yeah. Pete lived out in Riverside, and yeah. he would take those people around the Riverside racetrack and teach them how to drive. Man. I mean, the list of names, you, you've thrown out a lot of names. There's a lot more, but a few more here. Uh, Chuck Day, you mentioned Kessler, Warren Olson, uh, Dick Troutman, Tom Barnes, Phil Remington, Ken Miles, Leo Goosen, uh, Jim Travers, Frank Kuhn, Ed Donovan, of course, the great Peter Brock. I mean, do you ever look back on your life, Sonny, and go, wow, I got to be around some very inspirational people? 
Well, yes. At the same <laughs> time, I took it as a you know, I'm not trying to be arrogant, but I did my own thing. But I was of never course. in front. I, I said to Chuck Day once, I said, Chuck, I said, how come there's, this is later in time, and a guy was a successful entrepreneur in, in, in selling my pieces. And he said to me, I said, why am I never in these pictures? Because you were always working. <laughs> <laughs> You're the guy getting the stuff done. Yeah. I was getting it done. Because so... <laughs> I guess funny. that's why they call me an unsung hero. But, you know, it's just, yeah. I was motivated by the job. I'm an entrepreneur like you and I talked about. Yes. Well, I wanted to touch on that a little bit. You and I had a wonderful pre-show chat. And we have a little bit in, in uh, common in our background. I was in the catalog business back before the internet. And, I know. And you were as well. Can you talk a little bit about the business you created uh, out of all of these relationships and your entrepreneurial side? Well, Actually, I had gotten drafted into the Army, of which my father wanted me to become a career officer. And uh, his story's in the book. He said, you know, I'd like you to go to West Point, and we're starting a new branch of the service, and that's called the Helicopter Corps. Wow. And he said, you'd be a perfect person for that. You love to fly, you've got a mechanical mind, and you would be perfect. And I said, Dad, I just can't do it. Well, those guys went over at Huey's and got slaughtered in Vietnam, as you know. Yeah. So uh, to, I, I love flying. I love the Army. I'm an Army brat, really, when you look at the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And I got a lot of experience because Dad had a lot of officer friends. And uh, I, I don't know. All I can say is is that basically that kind of got me started. And, and then... then uh, let me go back. After the Army, I came back and went to work for a fellow called Bill Doheny from the Union 76 Oil Company, the famous Doheny family. Oh, okay. And he had a he had a sport car agency on Sunset Boulevard, and he sold. He didn't sell Ferraris because those came through Chinetti in, in, in New York, but he sold Oscars and, and what the hell else with the other little car besides the Oscar? I'm blanking on it now. You know, a little four-cylinder. Uh, there's a lot. There were several of them. I mean, no, but anyway, but I mean, I'm trying to think of these, the Oscar and whatever. So they, we sold those up there at the agency, and then we repaired Ferraris and things like that. But he hired me. He brought. He was importing a spark plug. I mean, he was an entrepreneurial himself, Doheny, called NGK, which I guess is oh, now famous. Of course. And he said, he said, Sonny, I'd like you to go to the races and be my technician. In other words, you're going to represent NGK spark plugs at the races and talk to the racers. And in those days, we talked about heat range. And, you know, I was at the time very adroit at it. And I would, you know, I could read the spark plugs and say whether their mixture, whether the plug was too hot or too cold or, or whether the mixture was too lean or too rich and help these guys out at the sport car races. So that's what I did. And then I also went on the side and sold them to, to Shops, the spark plugs. So when I was working for him, I came up with the idea. This little Corvair came out, and I thought, "This is." I had this Porsche experience, of course, coming out my ears, and I thought, "Boy, I don't want to call it this, the poor man's Porsche." I said, "This is it. This little rear engine car. Yeah. We've got something here to work with." And so I took that Corvair, and I said, "You know, it needs more carburation." I knew that right away. It needed it needed a lot of things, but I'm not going into the details. So I thought, you know. Because I'm a hot rodder, I'll come up with better and bigger and better things. Yeah. And I invented a manifold in which I patented to put a four-barrel carburetor on it. It's That led to the formation of the business. And then I met uh, my friend Jack Doolin, as I said in the book, who was an Indianapolis mechanic. I knew a lot of indie people because we all associated. And he he said, you know, you got to meet my friend Peterson. Well, I'd known about Peterson because I started reading Hot Rod Magazine as a kid. And so... 
he said, you got to meet Bob. And this was like 1961 or something when I got out of the Army. And uh, we went over to Bob's house, and he lived in Hollywood, not far from where I lived. Actually, he actually lived up the street. I didn't realize it. I, I rented an apartment on the top of a garage on Curson, and Peterson lived up on the top of the street. And he was a real eligible back bachelor in those days, <laughs> ten years older than me. Yeah. But you know, he was. You know, he was just. A, he was a nice guy. He was an entrepreneur, and uh, so we all knew a lot of friends like Revelo, Ronnie Burns. Uh, Gary Crosby, Jimmy Boyd, I mean, it's a bunch of Hollywood stuff in my book. Peterson said, let me have my friend Ray Brock look at your thing. And so Ray naturally came over and looked at it. He says, you know, they just launched a magazine called Sports Car Graphic. So he said, you know, we'll do an article on that. So they did. Brock thought it was a merit, and he did an article. Well, it took off. And then I started buying little two-inch ads, which was all I could afford. And I had a P.O. box and uh, started selling these manifolds just by themselves. And out of that, actually, Pete Brock introduced me to a fellow called Rick Runyon, who was a very skilled um, art center designer, you mm -hmm. know, designing catalogs oh, and yeah. things like that. Yeah. Very skilled guy, an art center graduate himself. And he helped me put together my first catalog. Pete had advised me, go see him. So I went to see him, and I started getting some, some ancillary parts from other people that had put a few things on the market. And then I started inventing my own thing, like steering arms and shifters so the shifting mechanism would only have to travel half the way, all kinds of stuff that would probably be pedestrian today. But uh, I launched a little catalog I used to sell for a quarter by mail order. And that uh, they and then they got their money back if they bought something. But that's <laughs> how smart. we got started. Yeah. Well, it's a fascinating story. I love it because, as you know, I worked in direct mail catalog business in the uh, right. 80s and 90s and, and beyond. So I understand. But, uh, yeah, you were a bit of a pioneer way back when, when all there really was was a Sears catalog. wasn't much more than that. That was it. Well, that was it. There was Sears and Montgomery Ward. But I took such a fancy into studying what we called then mail order, which, of course, today would be a lot like the web. And I just started reading everything I could and starting meeting some of the, the uh, um, mail order people that did things. We had a big company here in Los Angeles called Menninger, and Gregory Peck's son worked there, one of his sons. He worked there, and uh, so he and I became friends. And he told me a lot about the mail order business, and I just studied it voraciously about how the mail order business worked. Yeah. You know, how to measure stuff, and I said that in the book. You know, we, we invented mechanical algorithms back in the old days. Wow. That's That is an entrepreneur where I missed my lick. I was right on top of getting something going in the mail order business with computerization, I, which I did, but to create it and sell the programs is what I didn't do. That's where I missed the big bet. Well, square inch analysis. They did a lot of that stuff on each product to make sure that it was paying its way. I, I want to talk a little bit about cars with you because you've been around so many very special cars. I like to ask my guests to share one very special vehicle story in their life. Could be a race car you ran, could be a street car you had. I know you've been around for a while here, Sonny, but is there one car you could share with us today that really stands out? Well, I, I had a, one of the first steel-body 308 Ferraris. Ooh. And so this was later on after I was in business, and I said, it had a flat crank in it. You know what a flat crank is? Yeah, sure. For, for, okay, so, you know, they vibrate a little bit and all that, uh -huh. but it had Weber's on it. This is before injection or anything. It's the first steel-body car. They've made a fiberglass version, and they made this car. And by the way, I wish the hell I never sold it. I sold it to my <laughs> brother, but and my brother sold it to a guy, and he bought it really cheaply, and it was absolutely gorgeous. But anyway, because because of what I did to it. So I loved that car, 
as a hobby, you know, because I had a big business to run. At that time, I, I was doing several million dollars back in those days in, in business, which was which was good. Yeah. And so I took that that car and sort of toyed with it. I took the engine out, took it all apart, figured out how to make it work better in a few places, even though it was good for starts. It had really good opportunity with it. Changed the camshaft timing on it and, and uh, venturis and the carburetors and built special exhaust headers for it and so forth. Then I streamlined it a little bit and I put wider wheels on it. And I love that car. I drove around it all the time, but I would be, quite frankly, today it'd be too old. I couldn't, I'm too old to get in and out of it. <laughs> and the clutches were stiff and there was yeah. no power steering or anything else. Well, you know? of course. Now, but I, lo- I love that car. Now, those cars were built between 75 and 81, if my memory serves me right, the steel bodied carbureted car. What year was yours? If mine, mine car was a 78 or something. 78. Or something. That I makes sense. Remember. That makes sense right about that time. It was the first steel body car. And I bought it from uh, Modern Classic Motors in Las Vegas, who was Bill Hera, whom I knew, the big oh, car collector. Bill Hera, wow. And he had that agency on the side. On the side, I just bought it from him. But I had a successful business here in Los Angeles, and I had that. And uh, you know, it was a great car, but I also had, as a young kid, I had a 38 Chevy sedan that I drove everywhere. Yeah. And heated that all up, you know, modified the <laughs> engine a little bit. And buddy of mine and I built dual exhaust coming out one side like in Europe. So you had two exhaust pipes. And, you know, we did, that was also, I've had a lot of favorite cars. Well, when no you come kidding. To- I like the term heated up. Uh, nice way to say that. I think that's pretty cool. So this is a very unique question for you, Sonny. I'm guessing no one's ever asked you this, but you got to think a little hard for me here. I'm a car psychologist. If you were reincarnated... As a vehicle, this isn't what you want to be, though. This is how you perceive your personality as some kind of car. Makes the question a little more challenging. What vehicle would you be, but more importantly, why? Well, I drive an E63 Mercedes. That should tell you something. <laughs> I love that It would car. be something fast. <laughs> well, it's fast and responsive and yet docile. Yeah. So I have I have a docile car that's you know relatively comfortable to drive. Of course, suspension's kind of stiff on it. I mean, I could stiffen it up with a turn of a computer switch, but it has the power I need. So I'm a I'm still a driver. So when I get inside a car and I'm in traffic, uh, like I taught my wife when years ago, I said, "Quit following that car. Go around him." <laughs> that's what we do. That's what we do in race cars. We don't wait for the slow guys. We get around them. <laughs> <laughs> but but anyway, I, I had that attitude about it, and and I love that E60. I still have it today. It's a 2015, but it goes like stink, as we used to say. But what I like about it most, Mark, is responsive. I want responsiveness. I want something that'll handle, go where I point it, and give me control over the braking system, and be able to use that engine when I need it for the power when I want it. Why am I not surprised at that answer, Sonny? <laughs> An old racer. <laughs> that makes sense. Well, I'm basically a hot rodder, and, you know, yeah. the hot rodders, it never goes away. I know. That's absolutely true. Now, I like to ask all my guests for a reference to a great book. Of course, today we're going to refer to your book. Uh, you listeners, the title of the book is Raul Sonny Abalkin. Uh, it's by him, and he's got some co-authors, Jill Amadio and, of course, Pete Lyons, who I know well. He's been on the show before. Uh, hopefully, we're going to get both of those two back on the show to talk about their involvement so we can learn about you, Sonny, from their point of view. This will be kind of interesting. Uh, but today, yeah. I'm, I'm going to enable you to go on what I call the ultimate drive. Now, this is a fun thought. If I could put any car in your garage that you could take out and have a fun drive in, you could do that. So I'm going to pay for it. Don't worry about the cost. You can take anybody with you, even somebody who's no longer with us. So that opens up the world to this 
incredible selection of people you've worked with, and you can drive anywhere in the world. So the magic wand is waving for you, my friend. What does the ultimate drive look like for you? Ultimate ride for the ultimate drive. Drive. You be driving, my friend. I don't think you're going to be riding. You're going to be driving. Okay. If I want to drive it, I think the ultimate car I would like is the good old E63. It goes <laughs> everywhere I want to go. And yeah. it's very, huh? Back to that. Yeah. I mean, it's for my age, at where it is now, I mean, I couldn't sit in a Lambo. I mean, I couldn't even get in it, you know, for that <laughs> matter, and get out of it. I could certainly drive it once I got used to it. But, uh, you know, when your eyesight not what it used to be and your responses aren't what they used to be something like the e63 is that perfect compromise so coming from me that's how i say it i think so i'm not trying to help mercedes <laughs> but it's a, they do build great automobiles oh yeah they're wonderful now since i'm offering you the opportunity to take anyone with you including somebody who's no longer with us if you could ask anyone to sit in the passenger seat with you even somebody who is deceased who would it be probably chuck day chuck day and why is that well, because he was a, he, I don't know, he'd coach me or whatever. He was a good friend, a very yeah. close friend. Yeah. And he'd say, do this, do that, you know, and he had his nicknames for me and, and all this stuff. And, of course, I was a kid compared to him. But, you know, he he and I used to travel around quite a lot. You know, I mean, he that's why I liked him special, and I really miss him. I think he died in 2008. And uh, I remember one time we went down to San Diego and we were we took the Formula Two car, which was a fifteen hundred car Cooper, rear engine Cooper, oh, yeah. which later became the Brabham made it into a Formula One car with a two point five liter. So we had the two liter. We were down there driving. Uh, Chuck takes it down there and he puts me in the seat. He says, "Okay, strap up, put your goggles on, and go for a ride." <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the kind of guy he was. So he he participated in uh, I think it was like five or six Grand Prix races driving a Scarab, right, in a Cooper. Well, yeah, with us we. Unfortunately, and I said so in my book, I didn't get to go because Uncle Sam's finest drafted me. Yep. It took me right out from beneath the whole project, even though I'd worked on the Formula One project from the beginning. And it was, uh, but, but we went to Europe with it and failed dismally. And Chuck drove well over there. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why and we're not engineer on an engineering basis to debrief it now. But my own estimation, being, you know, scientifically oriented, we would have, I, I'm sure we would have done something, but yeah. we, you know, the the money got withdrawn and we didn't, but we were the first American Formula One car because Lance insisted on that, yeah. that everything wow. be American. You know, amazing guy. I mean, he was born back in 23. Um, he served as a paratrooper during World War II. Um, you know, what a history that that gentleman had as well. And the fact that you guys were friends. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that would be fun. to. Bring. I was a very close friend to Chuck. And his brother, Harold, I, I don't even know if Harold's still alive, but Harold was a Marine Corps major, I believe. And he flew in Korea and he was a jet jockey. You know, he flew the P-51s and then the F-86s. And he used to fly, as I said in my book, the Company 310 all the time. And I had a little thing about a trick that... that uh, Harold did to us. We're flying back from Nassau, the Bahamas, which was a big race. And anyway, the people read it, they'll get a kick out of it. <laughs> well, but but Harold, Harold, the Day brothers were special people. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, listeners, this book, if you love racing and you'd like to hear it right from the lips of a guy who lived it, you got to get your hands on uh, Sonny's book, again, titled Raul Sonny Balkeen, uh, printed by our friends at Evro over in the UK. I'll put links on Sonny's show notes page. Sonny, you've taken us on a very little window, a fun window into your life. The book opens up an amazing story. It's just 
absolutely spectacular. Before I let you go, would you share maybe some words of inspiration, maybe uh, a mantra of some kind or some type of life learned lessons that you could share with us as we're into the new year? And I outlined that in the book, by the way, and, and that's what uh, uh, Peter was excited about from England. But I feel, having been in business like yourself, I uh, and and having been in motor racing and so forth, that, that I'm very scientifically oriented. So, you know, it's trial and error, mm-hmm. scientific method. So you, you, whatever you do, be curious, be constantly curious, work in your passion and work with people that know what they're doing. And if you're with people that don't know what they're doing, you've got to be able to separate them out and get them out of your life. Mm, yeah. And uh, then you deal with the people that know what they're doing. And you can really recognize that. You really do. And I think with wisdom, you know, your life really would. But I like to say always remain intellectually curious and constantly keep learning. Absolutely. Great words of wisdom as we enter into the new year New year here. Uh, I want to do a shout out. Thank you to our mutual friend, Judy Stropus. Uh, Judy, again, once again, you brought me a, a gem here on Cars. Yeah, Sunny is absolutely fantastic. I'll put a link to the book, all of you out there. And, and I always remind people, books make great gifts for your buddies and pals too, because they bring real life adventures, in this case, to light. So uh, get your hands on Sunny's book. Hey, Sunny, thanks for being so generous today with your time and your expertise and for sharing a snippet of a life well lived until you and I talk again my friend I'll see you down the road thank you Mark you're welcome if you're listening to this program there's a pretty good chance you believe what I believe that the collector vehicles we love are more than just a means of getting from one place to the other they're a part of our culture our identity and as a people they bring us together at vintage races classic car auctions and thousand mile rallies. That's why I support the RPM Foundation, which exists to ensure that the critical skills necessary to preserve and restore these important vehicles aren't lost to time. RPM stands for Restoration, Preservation, and Mentorship. And their goal is to inspire the next generation of vehicle restoration professionals through its outreach programs. And they include Shop Hop, Off to the Races, the RPM Future Class, and many others. These programs engage talented young people across the country and connect them with mentors and a variety of opportunities in the industry. For more information on how the RPM Foundation is driving the future of collector vehicles skill trade, visit rpm.foundation today. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah! Drive on over to carsyeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah! Yeah!